Hey gang, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company. It's a podcast about music and Web3 and trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm McKeegan Boyce. So today I'm introducing a special edition of the show, which is a recording of a decentral Twitter spaces I co-hosted called An Anti-Scale Approach to Growing Music Communities. The idea of anti-scale was conceived as a challenge to think about how we can grow and cultivate music communities in ways that work with the core tenets of community, which rely on transparent, non-extractive and intimate relationships, which aren't a part of the broad social and streaming platform as we know today. Alongside my co-host, Neil Berkeley, who is a co-founder of Decentral, I was joined by Lonnie Truck, who helped to build out and cultivate genre DAO, as well as Black Dave, who is an artist who has always been at the vanguard of community building in Web3, Martin Walraven, who is a co-captain of Wild Awake and Music X, and Mike Sugarman, who is the conceiver of Freak, a platform tuned for music community that leverages something he calls very small online platforms. It was a really fantastic, insightful conversation that was full of kindness and inspiration um, towards healthier community building in music. So I hope you all enjoy the conversation. Here we go. This is uh, Neil Berkeley from Essential Media. Um, thank you for doing this. This is exciting. Uh, this is the first one of these we've done specific to uh, music. Uh, Keegan's been working with the company for a while and the work he's doing is really great. And so this is exciting. A little bit about Decentral Media. Uh, my partner, Matt Lysing, and I started the company as a way to tell the more human side of, of this world. There's a lot of coin pumps and dumps and, and stories about prices. Um, but I think what everyone on this uh, space is trying to do is use these tools to gather people uh, to promote our art, to get people to see what we're doing, to also have everyone participate. And I, I think it's really cool that people are using things like NFTs and DAOs to find a new, better way for communities to not only gather, but also proliferate. Um, so I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, and I can go ahead and kick it off. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Well, I'd love to get to what you're doing. But first, I'd like to talk about the problem. What is what is available to artists, musicians, uh, anyone trying to show the world what's inside of them? Uh, what is available right now? What are the roadblocks? And uh, how how does it work now as far as the the flywheel picking up an artist and deciding that they are what's good and they are what everyone should be listening to? Um, right or wrong. I'll let you decide that. But I'd love to know where we are now that has caused you, everyone, to decide to look into new ways to talk to their communities. I'll start. Um, one thing that's interesting for me, and uh, hi, everybody. I'm Dave. I make music uh, primarily. I do lots of things, but uh, that's the main thing I do. I think for me, I... Um, we're kind of caught in this era where everything is is about how well you can do on social media. Um, a lot of music, the music internet today, is talking about um, the Billboard article that came out that says that music industry execs are depressed because they don't know how to make artists successful, pretty much. And and it's like only Olivia Rodrigo and Ice Spice have succeeded in this new era. What is going on? We're so sad. We don't know what to do. That's the article. Um, but I think part of the issue is that they, the music industry at large has sort of become 
um, slaves to the algorithm. And so they're, they're looking at data as opposed to looking at real trends and real culture. And so I personally wasn't trying to fight that fight. And entering Web3 at the end of 2020 and into 2021, I was starting to find more ways to have more direct connections with people. And so I had initially created my own Discord server. It's probably got like 250 people in it right now. I started like trying to think about how I can change the content I'm making on Twitter that's more interesting to the community that I have and things like that. But the the way that it's set up now is pretty much go viral on TikTok. Okay, now sign a record deal and pray, you know? And um, I don't think I wanted to be caught in that that sort of cycle um, because even even large artists are becoming sort of um, susceptible to that sort of thing. Um, if you think a couple of years back, might have been last year, I think it was mostly during the pandemic how artists would go on TikTok and say, my label won't let me put this song out <laughs> unless I make a TikTok. Um, and I wanted to avoid that. So that's my answer. You know, so I work in documentary film for the most part. And also the experience I had, there was a project I was working on that was at the end stages of, of being approved to go forward. And everyone at the place, I won't say where it was, loved it. They loved everyone involved. There were some very powerful, well-known people involved and got a call one day. And the lit, someone literally said, this, we're, about, we're about to say yes, but we ran it by the algorithm people and they said it's not going to work. And it was amazing. It was defeating to hear that. And it just makes you wonder if these decisions are being made te- really by people that sit and listen to the same thing all day long or maybe sit and listen to not good things that aren't good. Like, How do you know what's even good anymore if there's some algorithm, some digital thing that's just, just moving it around because a lot of people are doing it? Um, that's got it's, it's a horrible place to be, but that's really where we are now. Does anyone have any other experiences with trying to get something out there and but hit, ramming into that wall of uh, just how things are done these days? All the time <laughs> is probably my answer. Um, yeah, it also makes me think like I'm, you you don't you just don't get to the end of a feed, right? I mean, people have to continuously make all these all this content for all this social media, but. We don't really ever get to the end. We scroll miles and miles and miles of, of content on our phones, but do we do we actually see it? Do we stop to think about it? Like at what point at what point does something start dominating your mind that you sort of step away from whatever it is that you're scrolling through to kind of actually think about it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm working on a, a project right now about grunge music, and we talk a lot about how that that thing that happened mostly because there's guitars involved probably couldn't happen again but it's also a great version of uh like Atlanta rap that that where a scene where a community becomes the thing that gets popular and not the the one song and not or not the one artist that the whole community and it sounds like that's what you're trying to do um there are people on this space trying to do, they're trying to get their communities to become what's popular. I mean, how does, how does this web three uh, unlock the ability to do that? I've been talking a lot about how, and thankfully in this group, none of us are participating in that, but like how your NFT profile pick doesn't actually say anything about you as an individual. 
but that you guys are everyone who has this PFP is trying to create some value around the picture, right? I think that what many of us are trying to build reverses that. We're trying to say, hey, we're making something, and if you get in on this thing, it says something about you. Um, I am into sneakers and into streetwear, and I wear a lot of uh, like what they call quick strike Nikes, which just kind of come out once, limited quantity, and they never come out again. And when people see me in those, and when I see people in them as well, we have a connection based on that. So when I look at token ownership um, as an opportunity to sort of create that digitally in a world where um, I think we're a little bit less discriminate in who we follow, um, but still slightly discriminate in what we buy, that there's a real opportunity there for us to sort of create scenes around ideas and create like things around culture. So like um, I have something called Black Dave token, which I'm Black Dave. It's a token and it's literally like, uh, I think I'm really smart, so give me money. That's the point of it. And um, what's ended up happening is it's formed a community of people who uh, place value in other smart Web3 people. And so now it's like this, this hub of all these really smart people talking about music, talking about Web3, talking about the internet, talking about culture and things like that. And I think that if we look at opportunities to create um, around ideas as opposed to putting something out in the air and letting the people who buy it create the culture, um, that's I think that's what a lot of us are probably trying to build here. So what, how do you... Uh, my question is, um, let's talk technically though. Like what tools and are you using and how? Um, I know some people are, are developing DAOs. I'm always curious when I hear the word DAO, how decentralized things are. I mean, if there's an artist at the top of it, are they sharing everything? Are they letting all the decision-making, like where does the DAO of it all start and stop? Um, and then for fans that that aren't in this space, how, do you, how much knowledge do you have to have uh, to play catch up and to be involved. Do you have to have a wallet? Do you have to be able to buy an NFT? Um, I'm mostly curious about the tech side of this, how, how you're, what you're using, how you're using it and how helpful or at this point in, in the game, how, how complicated is it? So if you have a DAO, how decentralized and organized is your DAO? No, I was just going to say none of us have a DAO. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, think they're more... And more communities organized around token ownership, I think, um, than DAOs. You know, I think one thing that I think about in terms of DAOs um, that I don't know if it slipped away or, or if I've always had the wrong idea is like, I really think that DAOs are like sort of action focused, right? Um, I think being in community is an action, but I don't think that we're trying to take action. And so... Um, I'll say on my technical end, um, Black Dave token is just an ERC-1155 token. So I've made a million of them. And um, and they sell for 00025 Ethereum. And once you do that, once you mint the token, you can go to Guild, uh, connect your wallet, and then it'll send you a link to join the Telegram chat. That's essentially the gist of how this, this is set up. But I've also run an experiment with... Um, with a song of mine, and um, I minted a song, sold it for three Ethereum uh, fractionally. Forty-two people got in on it, and um, 
And then what I did from there was I started making snapshot proposals, um, literally on snapshot. And I would say, if you're a fractional owner of this NFT, tell me if I should put this song on DSPs. Tell me um, how much of this three Ethereum is the budget or the treasury for this song. Um, and then down the line, the plan is to provide some video treatments to the, to the, you know, for all intents and purposes, this is a DAO, right? It's a community for action formed around a token. And, um, and so it's going to be here, music video treatments, which one should I choose? How much of this budget of two Ethereum should go to marketing? How much of this budget should go towards shooting the music video and looking at like ways that people can be involved, I think is really cool and really important. I do think um, a lot of time has passed. A lot of things that actually existed a long time ago are becoming normalized. You're starting to see a lot more credit card payments sort of show their face. And I think that that's going to be a, a really big opportunity on the community front to really start onboarding non-Web3 folks into these communities. I don't think that you have to start teaching people about wallets and NFTs and things like that to join a community. But I think if you're going to start trying to sell them NFTs, then it becomes really important to start educating them. Yeah, I mean that's what we did with with Wild Awake. We did every single artist. We 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 talked to them. We went on a call with them. We uh, you know we shared screen when they were setting up their wallet. We uh, helped them uh, buy their first NFT with their ENS domain. Um, so it's a very hands-on approach, which also means that the the, the the tech stack in brackets isn't very exciting yet, right? I mean it's. Um, we also uh, worked with with token tracks where you can do indeed those those um, uh, credit card payments as well in the hope that they would bring in um, some of their fans who are not Web3 native uh, into this uh, digital collectible uh, side of things. Um, so the, 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 yeah, in that sense, the tech stack isn't that, that super interesting yet for a while away. But it could be going into the future depending on where people want it to go. Yeah, it does sound like you're you're a couple steps away from this. I mean, you are, you know, like a DAO, you're putting a lot of these thoughts uh, into the hands of your fans, which is fascinating. Um, is this sort of that you, you've, I'm sure you've heard of the thousand true fans concept. Um, is that is that part of this, that smaller, more engaged communities are better for not just financially, but better for the art long term? Martin, you would enjoy this. Uh, <laughs> we in the in the Black Dave Token chat have been talking about this the last maybe day and a half. Um, Sound actually posted like a ten thousand true fans or a thousand true fans kind of vibe, um, and the founder of Sound is actually in the chat. But we were talking about how a thousand true fans means a million listeners. You know what I'm saying? You really because the thousand true fans is the bottom of the funnel. And I think like, especially when you look at like the title of this chat and this idea of like anti-scale, it's almost like instead of trying to get a million listeners, we're trying to get one true fan at a time and skip a lot of the listenership. So it becomes a much slower and deliberate process. I think um, when you're caught up in the traditional music system, uh, it's that TikTok, Spotify, playlist, um, influencer thing that you're chasing. Um, and I think the thousand true fans model is, is like so sick and, and so true. Um, and, but now it's like, you're walking 1000 people into a door personally, as opposed to 
throwing something out into the world and hoping that a thousand people catch it, um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you're if your music is is being caught up with the algorithm and you're being played that much, um, eventually your wallpaper, your background music, right? But if there's a thousand people that are very invested and involved in you and what you have to say, they're actually listening to it. I assume that's what you're talking about. Just the engagement, the involvement, the the immersion. The relationship your fans have is so much more than it just being on somewhere. Absolutely, and this is this is I think where Discord helps a lot. Like, um, there was a recent, not it's recent-ish, Tyler the Creator interview, and he's talking about uh, the Tyler the Creator Discord server that's not his, and uh, he thinks it's weird. Like, he's not super into it, but I imagine that in the same way that you know we're all of us here are a bit older. So um, in the same way that you would go to like your favorite artist's subreddit and find out, find the deepest fans who are finding the most random facts about like your favorite artist, this Discord server is full of people who are doing that. And, um, and so there's like, I think even with that, you reach a different point in the funnel when you're talking about that Discord server. I think I want to say it may have been Grimes. Grimes has a Discord server of her own. And um, then there is a fan-made Grimes Discord server. The fan-made Grimes Discord server hates Web3. The Grimes Discord server by Grimes is into it. And so um, it's it's really interesting, too, I think, how hands-on you are in that uh, Thousand True Fans journey. Because um, in some ways, they can form a mind of their own. And that mind that they create might be different than uh, the work that you create. And so I think there's also a, a, a double power doing that can you so can you explain a little bit more about what tyler what his uh issue is with a, a discord he doesn't own is it just the control thing or what what what's he talking he, about so it's it's fan-made and so for him i think so his whole ethos is around this idea of uh being really into whatever you like and just doing that and i think that he in some ways is um feels like super fans in that way i think are weird to him even though he's a super fan of so many people and so many things uh it's always funny to listen to tyler who i love talk about that because i'm like yo you're like them you're pretty much them <laughs> except for pharrell like you love pharrell as much as they love you um and so it's it's really interesting but i think and i've talked to a few artists about this uh, over the years like if you can even create a space, especially if you're an artist of size, where your fans can even sometimes reach you, um, it takes things to a totally different level. Um, I, I used to always make a comment about uh, like Rihanna, and if she made a Discord server, how many more Savage Fenty sales she would get, how many more um, albums she might sell, even though she hasn't released an album in like 15 years, like how many of these different things, just by doing a a monthly Q&A for an hour, you know, and just saying, oh, you know, I really love this song of mine, you know, and everyone's like, oh, I need to go stream that. I think it's always really interesting. Uh, and, and thank you for allowing me to go on all these rants. I think it's really interesting how artists can create their own moments that then put their songs back on the charts. Um, and then how the artists in some ways can capitalize on that, where, you know, the a Rihanna Stan account is saying, Rihanna said that her favorite song is California King Bed, which is a deep cut from one of her albums. 
And and then all of a sudden, California King Bed is number eight on the Spotify charts. You know, it, it could be like that. Um, I think spaces are where rants are welcome and beloved. So <laughs> please uh, rant away. Um, so if, if we're talking about this, we should we should talk about issues and roadblocks. Like when you say Grimes has fans that don't like Web3, is that are they just saying, please don't make uh, access token? Please don't release your music as an NFT. Is that What's the what's the issue there? They hate NFTs, you know. Like, um, <laughs> they I think you see this a lot. It's it's so funny because one of the like I think weird differences is that with music, fans hate NFTs. Artists love NFTs. With gaming, gamers aren't so mad at them as much as publishers are. You know, and uh, I always say that the, the gaming industry isn't broken enough for for the pub like the publishers to care. The music industry on the artist side is broken enough for us to do something about it. Um, but the fans just think that we're trying to steal their money and get you know sixty nine million dollars off of fifteen hundred pictures of dicks. You know, and so um, yeah, it's a it's a wild world. But yeah, they just are anti NFT in general. Well, I'm glad you mentioned publishing because. One thing for artists that clearly NFT technology can solve is payments. And you, you have to imagine the publishers are, are probably thrilled that so much of the money they have isn't collected every year. Because if you've ever dealt with a publisher, it's a nightmare. It's incredibly difficult to navigate where we all know anyone. I'm sure, I'm sure if anyone's on this space knows anything at all about blockchain and NFTs, collections are one of the beauties of, you know, smart contracts are one of the amazing parts of this technology. Do you feel like there that artists should be looking at this at least as a means of getting paid or, or royalties more than they already are now? Should we let someone else talk? I'm Lonnie. I'm an artist and a co-founder of Genre, which is the decentralized arm of Leaving Records. And so we formed the DAO in 2021 after several hangs in my garden with the founder of Leaving Records, Matthew David McQueen, and um, some other friends. And, you know, initially we were exploring like how these tools can be beneficial to an independent label and artists uh, in the community. And that started with some NFT experiments. And, um, you know, more recently we've been uh, working on building a, <laughs> a VSOP. Um, a term I first encountered in an essay, uh, a three-legged stool, co-authored by one of the guests on this call, Mike Sugarman. Um, and yeah, we've been building, you know, one of the challenges that we ran into in the early days of the DAO is that we were able to connect the artists with the Web3 community and Mint NFTs, but that wasn't connecting to our broader uh, actual community because, you know, um, most people in our community were not yet crypto native and did not have a wallet. And so... Um, after several years of focusing first on Web3 tools, um, we are now building a small online community portal that is very Web2 friendly. And then uh, from that substrate, we're going to layer on Web3 tooling um, under the hood and also like educational resources for learning about Web3 and try to really meet the community where they're at now. This is not talking, talking about. Um, <laughs> yeah, so cool. <laughs> question for you on, on that regard. Um, how much on the um, 
artist side, are you guys working on integrating blockchain into like the payment system? Um, I know Neil just asked about like publishing. And so like, how have you guys, if at all, been thinking about like Web3 as far as the payments go? Or like, and not just Web3, but more like, you know, blockchain payments. We call it, we like to call it Web3 accounting, but like, how have you guys been thinking about that? So Genre is not involved in the label operations at all. We are purely pursuing building community initiatives. So I'm not involved in that conversation at all beyond as it pertains to releasing NFTs with members in the community, you know, and so that obviously has blockchain payments integrated in, uh, into that process and splits contracts. So uh, other than that, I can't speak to that event uh, exactly. What we're focused on right now, we have two community initiatives uh, as part of this online community portal that we're building. We are inviting, uh, we host a free community concert in a park uh, the first Saturday every month um, in Elysian Park here in Los Angeles. Um, and we have for many years. And so we're inviting the community right now to submit their footage from these park concerts to a public archive that we're building, a living library of all of this documentation. And then separately, we're also building a collectively published calendar for the artists in the community. So essentially, the idea for both of these projects is to like build these micro bridges away from Instagram. You know, so I think we're all kind of exhausted by these uh, centralized social media um, giants that feel like they're sucking our attention and profiting off of our engagement. And we all feel like we need to use them to um, continue being independent artists, but we're all pretty uh, exhausted by the experience. And so the idea of this portal is to create like little bridges away from Instagram that fulfill some of the practical, useful aspects of it in a smaller community setting um, and let artists share about their work in small groups. So, well, let our artist community share a, in, in a small group environment. And, um, you know, we plan to open source everything we're doing. So if another community wanted to fork this ecosystem setup that we're building, they could do so. And um, yeah, the idea is that in the future, um, we would layer on Web3 tools onto this Web2 substrate. For example, give everyone in um, the community that's contributing to this archive and all the artists that have been documented there, ENS subnames, that then we can create uh, like an NFT open call for remixing the archival footage and then mint that within a marketplace in the ecosystem and write everyone into the splits through those ENS subnames. Hi, Lonnie. This is yeah. Mike. Um, hey, Mike. Wow. Hey, I'm, I'm honestly, uh, wow, I'm just like really excited that um, to hear someone saying Vsop out loud. Um, the only people <laughs> I've ever heard say it out loud are like the two people I wrote that paper with, um, <laughs> Ethan, Ethan and Chant. Um, thank you for reading that paper. I'm actually really touched that that spoke to you. Um, it's all, I mean, leaving records, wow. Um, yeah. When I was in college, Leading Records was putting out music that just like totally blew my mind, like the Raz G album, the L Alien record, Julia mm-hmm. Holter album. So like, yeah, I don't know. This is just like super exciting to me and I'm, I'm super glad to hear about that. Um, and it's also interesting to hear... Raz G! Sorry. R.I.P. It's interesting to hear about the calendar stuff. So, you know, I, I tried to do something kind of similar when I was living in um, Chicago, um, I left Chicago in 2019 uh, to move out east uh, for better or worse. Sometimes it feels like for worse, but only because I love the Midwest so much. Um, 
but I was involved. I started a project there called Groove Cafe, which really grew out of, um, you know, I had friends who uh, were, fortunately no one passed, but, you know, who were uh, at Ghost Ship when the big fire happened. Um, And I kind of had spent the previous period of years before that working at DIY venues, which were, I always felt like kind of, um, I don't know, the fire safety wasn't great in those places. So it really scared me when the ghost ship thing happened. And I, I was working with some folks in Chicago to try to create kind of like a set of standards and practices around fire safety and DIY venues. Um, and that kind of spawned, hey, everyone hates Facebook. Why don't we make a calendar? And we were running a Google calendar that was like honestly pretty full until the pandemic hit. And, you know, people weren't going to shows anymore. But I'm just, it's so interesting to hear the VSOP idea kind of um, attached to the calendar idea. And I, I guess I'm kind of curious to hear from you, Lonnie, about um, like what, 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 what do you all see as VSOP and what, what do you mean by um, like, what do you conceive as like the thing that gets forked? And then kind of like, what's the relationship between what Leaving is doing and kind of local community? And like, do you see that as like only something that's like LA specific or something that could kind of, be, um, you know, transported to other places as well. I know that's a lot of questions at once, but... Uh, Lonnie, before you jump in, can you, expl- for people that don't know, explain some of those acronyms and some of that language uh, quickly? Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> everything you said was so lovely, Mike. Um, I am going to try to remember all those questions and respond. Um, okay. Wow. Um, a VSOP uh, comes from a beautiful essay. I wonder if I can pin it in the, I don't know if I have the capability to pin in, in the in the space, but I'm going to try to do that in a second. Um, is from an essay um, co-authored by Mike um, about, I think it says a manifesto for building a smaller, denser internet. And it's exploring, uh, VSOP stands for a very small online platform. Um, Sometimes I like to say very small online place um, because (laughs) I feel like the word platform sort of has sometimes a negative connotation as it pertains to our current monolithic platforms. Um, But yeah, the way that I think about it, um, you know, I think there's a need uh, to build a... (laughs) One of the musicians um, in the community, Diego Galleta, I was talking to him about this and he said, it needs a beautiful container. (laughs) And I've been thinking a lot about that, about like how to build spaces online that reflect the energy and feeling of our physical communities and um, like what that looks and feels like and and, um, yeah, what tools you would use to construct it. And, um, so yeah, I, I've already forgotten everything else you asked me, Mike. Um, (laughs) but I, you know, I think we're, our intention of building, uh, like it's just a, you know, it's a website that we're building really. And I'm, you know, we're not building it as a social network necessarily first. Um, it's more like there are social dynamics and I like to think about VSOPs actually as infinite games in tandem with the Aya from the Ethereum Foundation's infinite garden concept um, that like people can play these infinite games in VSOPs and um, infinite creative games that, you know, eventually with like Web3 tooling layered on can be, um, you know, maybe financially mutually beneficial as well and creatively inspiring. And um, and as for forking the tools, um, you know, right now the stack that we're building across is like fairly, you know, simple and uh, Web2 uh, centric. So like it would just be like, you know, documentation 
sharing what that is. Um, it's not like an official tech stack that you could like download, but, um, you know, we're working with a new project called Cult that's building an infinitely flexible coordination layer for collective publishing. So right now I'm building like a very rudimentary version in WordPress primarily. And um, then eventually I think it might become something that's more integrated with their system. Um, But really like the intention for me is to make it as simple as possible that anyone could take it and replicate it themselves. I am asking questions like in tandem with this conversation about scale, like how big is too big? Um, like when does a community published calendar become like, you know, have too much information on it to be useful and how to like allow for mycelial networks maybe to emerge within an ecosystem so that you can let things grow organically and yeah, see, see how things emerge naturally from there. Yeah. yeah that was a beautiful answer, Lonnie. Thank you. Um, hey, I'm, <laughs> no, everybody, I'm Keegan. No, I just wanted to jump in, um, you know, on top of, that because I think you brought up a really good point there, and that that's that's like kind of the juxtaposition and like the tension that I was hoping we would get to in this conversation and like thinking about anti-scale and and it's kind of a challenge to think about ways to to grow and cultivate music communities in ways that rely on the core tenets of community, which um, I, I imagine we can agree are you know transparent, non-extractive, and have like you know, some degree of intimacy. Um, which, you know, is pretty antithetical, I think, to a lot of the social spaces we use today, you know, the really broad, massive ones. And I'm curious to explore that, that kind of threshold between, um, like, at what point does a community stop becoming a community? How can we think about growth in a healthier, in, you know, in a healthier way? And, um, you know, I guess this is in, in, in a kind of a question for you, Mike, um, you know, you know, going back, to your paper and thinking about freak and this idea, you know, of the VSOP. And I'm, I'm curious how you envisage, you know, these very small online platforms and thinking about growth, um, you know, specifically building out freak, if you could talk a little bit about that and the vision for it and of how you're thinking about growth. I, th- I think within the context of, you know, these very small online platforms. Hey, um, yeah, that, those are great questions. I'd be glad to answer them. Um, I, I hate to do the thing that's probably going to make me talk for a little bit longer than anyone might want to hear, but I feel like maybe I can just explain some stuff so everybody knows what the hell I'm talking about. Um, but right, so I work at the Initiative for Digital Public Infrastructure. It's a small lab at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Um, it's a really cool space. Um, we have a bunch of different projects. One is this thing called Small Town, which is kind of like um, just a Mastodon fork, basically, that um, you can spin up to have local civic conversations. So we're working with um, the town of Amherst, as well as the town of South Harvey, Illinois, to kind of create good spaces for people to have civic conversations. Um, South Harvey... Um, for the music people in here is an interesting place because it's where a lot of the uh, tech life DJs ended up moving after they kind of like left the South side. Um, And there's still a lot of families there and stuff. I think DJ Rashad was in South Harvey, um, I think for like four years or so before he passed. Um, So it's a cool place. We haven't tapped into the music uh, scene there just yet, but I, I wanted to figure out how to do that. So one of the other things that we do, because we're very interested in using the internet for kind of small local conversations, um, is this project called Freak. Um, Freak, the best way to explain it is if you're on Letterboxd, 
It's kind of like letterboxed for music, um, plus a little bit of Reddit. So the idea, I mean, I, Twitter, Reddit, there's such good examples of like when these platforms are run by these kind of um, investment VC-fueled corporations. They don't really have stability um, as like a priority necessarily, right? So the example that I've been using about Reddit lately is after all of the Reddit protests, the Reddit blackouts where mods were turning their subreddits private um, in protest of API policies that would have made moderation a lot harder. Reddit responded by saying, hey, if you don't open up your subreddit, we're going to kick out um, your moderators. So the moderators from r slash canning got kicked out. r slash canning is basically just a community where people talk about pickling things. Well, all of the moderators were biologists who work at university extensions. University extensions are usually where you go to get your canning equipment calibrated and they'll help you can stuff. And the thing that they used to do is they had a schedule when they would sit on r slash canning all day, 24 hours a day, make sure someone was always there to flag posts that were um, pictures of bad canning jobs that were botulism risks. So you basically had these experts making sure that no one who was going to this subreddit for advice on canning would accidentally create something that had botulism. Those people got, those moderators got kicked out by Reddit and they were replaced by people who do not have the same expertise. So we look at that as a really significant problem for communities, canning community in this situation, um, safety, but also just for the internet, right? The internet like sucks more if it's a place where you used to be able to not get botulism and now you don't, uh, you can't rely on that resource anymore. In music, this is something that's really near and dear to my heart because I've been involved with DIY music for the past 15 years. It's one of the most important things um, in my life. It's how I've met most of my friends. It's how I've met my current partner. It's been a key place, a key creative outlet. I've worked there as a booker. I'm an active musician. Um, and it's just always been so sad to me in the past few years that there's not an internet um, that supports music that isn't also a place where you're kind of free from buying stuff. And I think, I hate to say it, but this is where I, Keegan, I kind of alluded to this. This is where I'm like out of sync with the Web3 conversation because like I do mm -hmm. think there's really important stuff to do in terms of improving the market. I'm kind of interested in the whole other side of it, which is like, what's the non-commercial stable infrastructure? So the idea of free is basically, hopefully what we can do is we can build good software um, using um, the big database of every album that's ever been released from Music Brains, along with the Music Brains identifier, um, build that uh, using the activity, uh, what is it, activity hub protocol, um, the thing that all of the Mastodon um, and Fediverse data uses so that our data can be interoperable. Um, and, you know, free in an ideal world will be maintained by some kind of central entity. It could be forked if, you know, for instance, you know, we don't want um, national socialist black metal freak. Um, we will kick off the national socialist black metal groups. You know, I, in, they can go fork and freak and make their own national socialist black metal freak um, in a kind of federated uh, protocol. Like they can do that and everybody can choose not to federate with them and, they can go have their own space and they don't have to bother everybody else, frankly. Um, and you could have that in more kind of positive sense. You know, I think when I was living in Chicago, that was um, the Trump years. And there was definitely a sense that like, oh no, all of this stuff that we're posting on Facebook about our kind of queer 
focused events where, you know, we're giving out like feminine products to people who don't uh, necessarily have the resources for that kind of stuff. Is that something that could potentially raise the wrong kind of attention from bad outside forces, people who don't want showing up in your spaces? I mean, Providence, where I live right now, Providence, Rhode Island, there's a fantastic anarchist library here that has poetry readings. And it's one of the main places where DIY shows happen. They had an issue where neo-Nazis were showing up to protest, um, you know, basically once a month for a few months last year. Um, the neo-Nazis come from Massachusetts, for what it's worth. They're not from Rhode Island. Um, so, you know, and in that case, you might want to make a fork of freak. That's just a totally private music gathering space. Um, and then the actual platform itself is basically organized, kind of like what CD was organized, where you have collages, which are kind of big lists of albums. And those collages can be on any theme that you want. It could be, you know... Um, Samba music from the 60s and the most passionate 60s Samba fans could get on Freak and compile the ultimate list of Samba music from the 60s. Those can be organized by individuals. They can be organized by the subreddit-like groups. And then we're also hoping to work with a few actual in-person communities on some archiving, such as uh, we're, we're hoping to work with the People's, um, the, uh, People's Orchestra in Watts in L.A., um, yeah, and then on top of that, the last little component that I think is probably pertinent and interesting for Freak is um, we ultimately want to administer software um, and build software uh, that can be run in collaboration with public media, community public media. So it's something that we're very interested in here at um, IDPI, public media. Um, you know, a lot of people think public media does not exist in the United States because we don't have something as robust as Europe does, or you have like the BBC in Britain or something like that. Um, but it, it does exist. You know, we have our NPRs, but we also have our community radio stations. We have um, like WFMU in Jersey City is a really, really, really famous one. Um, you have plenty of college stations that are actually incorporated as nonprofits and um, don't actually take money from their colleges. They find a way to be totally self-sustaining through a series of grants, donations, and that kind of stuff. And we really want to build software that like boosters um, community public media. So, you know, an ideal version of this is that the main fork of Freak is like something that we run. We run co-design projects with community radio stations who themselves are in, turn to, uh, in charge of like administering like local instances of the project. Um, with our support. Um, there's interesting business model questions that come of that that I think um, potentially could open the way for something like public funding of this kind of local social media. Um, that's a big pipe dream in a place like America where public funding for stuff seems to disappear by the day. Like you turn around and you're like, oh, I didn't even know that thing had public funding and now it's gone. Um, but that's kind of where we're coming from. And I think that when I talk about community, really what I'm talking about is... Um, People who gather together kind of in a local place or around a shared interest or stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I, I have a lot of conversations with friends all the time about like, wow, music, the music scene just doesn't seem like it is what it was, you know, one year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago. You name any point in time, the music scene isn't what it was at that point in time. But I, I do think one thing that's true in the post-COVID era is that people do struggle to find that offline community because in a lot of places, it disappeared for a while. You know, um, this is my last little anecdote I'll have for you. So I, I do a lot of work with um, the radio station here at UMass Amherst. Um, I work with the undergrads. They'll be the first people that we test this platform with. 
And um, I had a research assistant last semester, this guy, Gil, who's brilliant. Um, And he's the music director of the radio station. And uh, I was like, he was telling me about how he was getting into DJing. And um, I was like, oh yeah, where do you DJ? He's like, well, um, I started school right when lockdown was still happening. So, you know, I was kind of like remote at home. And then like the first like year that I was back was kind of weird. Everybody was kind of awkward. We were just like trying to like feel it out. But I heard that like people used to throw shows in basements. So like when I got a house with my friends, we just like found a PA and like threw shows in basements. And like, it's been really cool. And it's like, I was so glad to hear that he was throwing shows in basements in Amherst. And it's like, oh yeah, the kids didn't necessarily have that through line that people tend to have in DIY scenes of this happens, it's always happening there was a break in it. Um, and they kind of had to reinvent it a little bit. And really what I think you can think about community as is like the space that people can try stuff in, the space that people can invent stuff in, the mutual support structure. And because of that, you know, they were hanging out parties and they were DJing music and they were playing music for each other. And they were like, man, it's such a pain in the ass that like we can't just make one playlist that has like a song from Spotify and a song from YouTube and a song from SoundCloud. And of course, I look at that. I'm like, that's a cool technical question that maybe we can get at with free. But Gil's solution and his friend's solution was to start ripping music off these platforms and burning it to CDs. And now they burn mix CDs that they, the radio station gives out a mix CD like every week or every month at official radio station parties burned on CDRs where they've like written on the front of them with magic marker. Um, and I think that's, a, it's like, okay, the way, cynical way you could look at it is like, oh, the kids are burning CDs again. Like they had to like figure that out. The way I look at it is I was like, you know what? Because like they have a specific context for like loving and enjoying music and sharing with friends. They're figuring out what works for them. And I think, I think that that is to me um, the most optimistic, beneficial thing to um, support in general. That's what I've devoted a lot of my life to supporting. And then in my role thinking about the internet technology, I'm really interested in like, how can you do that uh, with software tools? That was a really long answer. I apologize for that, but I hope um, I, I hope I kind of explained it decently. And yeah, that was amazing. Thank you so much, Mike. Um, no, I mean, I've, I think that, you know, that kind of definition of having like a space to experiment and I mean, first, I love like, in, you know, the throwback, like, you know, maybe this is like 1996 again, <laughs> uh, which I don't know, maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing. But, you know, I'm curious, like one of the things you you said is that your your interest is more aligned with with kind of like, like at the community level, thinking about like uh, these communities that that are more public facing, whether it be like college radio stations, people are focused on archival and curation. And that was one of the things that, you know, you mentioned to me when we first connected, um, as being less, you know, kind of less interested in the commercial paradigm. But you, you know, the ethos that that you're describing, it, you know, it feels very much like what Web three is, you know, trying to build. You know, you know, the on chain music, the on chain music ecosystem is attempting, you know, to build out these, you know, very connected platforms. Um, but of course, there's there's you know kind of the economic tension that is there as well, um, and that like everything is now financialized because everything you know is a token, or at least it's very easy to financialize. So I you know like to pose the question to people who are building in Web three, you know, just to think about just in, to ask about like how you're thinking 
about trying to achieve this ethos in a way that can that then adds the economic layer to it, if that makes sense. Like, what is the what is the healthiest way to marry these things? I think that uh, well, first of all, Mike, I love this anecdote about the um, the kids at Amherst making mix CDs. It reminds me of as a kid, I would like record onto cassette tapes off of the radio <laughs> um, to like listen back and make mix tapes of that. Um, yeah, like, okay, so speaking to economic models, I think there's a lot of um, pushback about the commodification dimension of Web3, but really, um, I think that one, that's a response to the first phase of this big NFT boom in 2021 of this like hyper commodification of like, um, you know, like uh, out of reach consumer goods, which, you know, I think that's just maybe the first phase of it. And maybe like that will always be a part of the situation. But I think in the future, there will be much more of a focus on like um, microeconomics, micropayments built into social systems. So like, I'm really interested in models of like free to access, but there's a tipping mechanism built into the ecosystem that, you know, can be enabled by various Web3 protocols. Um, so I think like that kind of, uh, and, and then like also like built into splits, the sharing of revenues of work that's created or curated collectively, uh, Web3 tooling makes that a very natural and easy um, integration as well. So I think really like, you know, we're evolving into a phase of the internet where like the first few um first few decades where you could just read the internet, you could, and then, you know, in the last phase of social, centralized social media, you could write to it. And Web3 tools allows us to now own what we're publishing um, and monetize that or not monetize it as we see fit. And I think really like that disintermediation of power from centralized um, platforms or, you know, um, economies um, allows us to create economics that reflect our values and fund the things we care about. That was one of the things that I was most excited about coming into Web3 is the idea of programmable money or being able to embed an idea or ethos into a financial transaction. And, you know, we can decide that we want to fund a community youth art education program as like, you know, part of the splits contract of an NFT that we mint. Um, so, you know, it allows for a lot more agency and um, freedom to create an economics that's in alignment with our values. I think also... Um adding some spice to what Lonnie's saying, like one thing that's actually kind of wonderful about using Web3 tech and NFT tech is that the media itself is never hidden. Um, and so you're in some way, whether the, whether like the front end hides it or not, you can find the media that's associated with an NFT just by looking at the contract, just by as, as if it's easy to read. But um but I think that with that in mind, anyone's able to participate in something. But something that I'm very, very interested in is the um, associated identity with with being willing to pay for it, right? If, if we jump back to Neil asking the thousand true fans question, it's like, um, I'm not saying I don't want fans who don't pay for stuff. I'm just saying I would love to know which fans are. Um, I would love to know the people who are hyper invested in the things that we talk about and the things that we do so much so that they would like to see it continue by putting their money toward it. Um, something that's that's really a, a prevailing mindset, I think, especially with music NFTs, 
um, because, you know, the secondary market for music NFTs is terrible, um, is, is this idea of um, people who love music wanting to just be patrons of music the same way that someone may have been a patron of fine art. Um, or I mean, still is, but you know, thinking especially about like the Renaissance era and things like that, where um, where art was a, a much larger part of culture. I think that looking at it in that way, where as opposed to saying I'm not, I'm hiding things from you unless you buy an NFT, and saying everything is available, all of you kind of get treated the same. But if you believe in what I'm up to, and you want to see this continue, and you want to see this grow. And you want to have the identity signifier that you are one of the biggest fans, then buying an NFT makes more sense. I think um, this becomes tough in Web3 because um, everything costs money to do, like to run. And so to even have an idea in most cases requires you to have um, at least some resources. And so um, you, in a lot of ways, can run into a situation where the under-resourced don't actually have the opportunity to create these communities. And, and I know that's a whole separate issue, but um, but I think is worth thinking about as well. And I think that this model of like, everything's free to access, but but the identity layer um, kind of makes it worth paying for if you are a big fan is interesting to me. Yeah, and I think one of the things, like if you talk about anti-scale approach, is that what we're seeing is that that it's it's you know it's not about a thousand true fans it's not about all of that stuff it's it's about finding a group of people where you can kind of figure out some way of sustainable sort of support system for whatever it is that you want to create right and um that can be your own music it can be your own creations it can be other stuff that people are doing um and um uh, w- one of the things that that i was sort of thinking about when I was listening to Mike is also, you know, that importance of the, the digital space is this, this, this space of discovery. Um, but it's very difficult to make people commit to stuff over, over that or across that digital space. Right. Um, and it's also very easy to, to, to drop out. Um, and I think that's sort of what, what genre, right. I mean, even just because it started in a garden, right, Lani, it's a, such a good example of how that sort of, you know, away from the keyboards, uh, uh, stuff can really can really get that commitment going. And I think that's one of the, the, the great things about uh, what you're building. And I was curious if, if that is sort of going to be in um, the next phase of genre as well. Thank you. Um, could you uh, expand on what you mean by that? What will be in the next phase? Oh, the sort of the, the uh, sort of IRL away from the keyboards, you know, oh. stuff that is not online. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I would say definitely for myself and many others in the community, I feel like there's a sort of digital fatigue taking hold <laughs> in society. And I think creating spaces, um, you know, I think, I think I've been asking a lot about the feeling of online spaces. Um, and I don't know how to how to make online spaces that don't take us away from our physical lives, but enhance them or build bridges. Um, I really like Martin what you've just said of like creating a sustainable collective um, creation of artwork and and publishing. I think um, you know our digital lives should uh, be in harmony or in symbiosis with our physical lives, and I think building um, you know 
online spaces that don't pull us away from that, but encourage us to connect and gather uh, physically is important. And, um, you know, I hope, I think like the thing that is most exciting for me about building a very small online space versus being like, we want to make the next music platform and put all these tools and trying to get everyone on. I think that, um, yeah, like, building a space that's rooted in an ethos of care and collective well-being and um, trying to create um, stability and abundance for the community and their physical lives um, is is essential to what we're building. I really love that. Um, communities of care, I think, are, well, um, there's a lot of talk about them now, but I think actually one thing that people based on that conversation is that communities are primarily communities of care unless it's like i don't know you're part of like a community of people sparring in like mma um in that case it's probably care too you want to teach each other how to fall correctly and um how to land a hit and how to ice things properly um and i would add to that you know i this is my kind of provocation for the web three people um, I, I, I see a lot of web, and I think it's justified, a lot of web three stuff is to answer the question of how can a specific creator get paid or how can a specific fan pay for something. Um, but I, I think, um, I always wonder if there's, the lens can be kind of um, refocused on, um, is there a way to collectively pool resources? Because at the end of the day, um, my point of view is a world where every musician has an equal opportunity to make a lot of money versus a world where 30 musicians have the ability to get together and um, help each other in a variety of ways. And that could be you crash on my couch when you're touring through Minneapolis. That could be I'll fix your guitar. That could be I know how to record. Um, it could be, hey, I know where you can get a job in the off season. Um, if there's a way to look at resources that are a little bit wider of you, um, I think that um, that that might be a really meaningful use of kind of like a financialized internet. I think that's a great point. I, I also feel like when you talk about the promise of Web3, it's the elimination of middlemen. And if you just look at how much is taken by just people being between artists and their audience, uh, just removing that alone at some point would probably be <laughs> a windfall for artists everywhere um if you agree if, if i agree um anyone <laughs> well one one thing i will say about that is spotify doesn't have middlemen spotify i can just upload my thing to spotify and um they might put on a playlist and they'll give me a lot of listeners i mean that's a curator i'm not sure that's a middleman um i would say that lack of middlemen is a good thing. And I also think there in music and art, there's a lot of really good um, middlemen, middle women, middle entities. And I think a lot of time that's what makes a scene. Um, so maybe the question is not how to eradicate it, but how to have the kind of symbiotic uh, version of it. Because it takes, I think it takes complex assemblage um, to, to make this whole thing work. Um, yeah. Well, this has been fascinating and enlightening. If there's any final thoughts from anyone, please raise your hand and jump in. But Keegan and I would like to thank everyone for being a part of this. Um, I, I want to maybe throw out as like a, a final thought as well. Like um, artists, especially um, are trying to, especially a lot of us who have entered web three are trying to find a way to build as much community as possible while um, 
still being able to create sustainable lives for ourselves. I think something that's been happening a lot in Web3 is that we are, many of us are looking at Web3 as our only form of income. But I think that um, it's a worthy challenge for a lot of folks in Web3 to think about how this becomes a part of the tool belt and not the whole tool set. I'm not good at tools. Um, And I just want everyone to think a little bit more about how they can create large communities while still trying to find ways to scale themselves financially because nothing in at least America is free. It's a great point. Um, I agree with what like Dave um, said. Um, I guess for me too is um, as a musician in this space, I think it's very difficult for us to build community. There's like two things when it comes to being a musician in this space that we have to kind of check off. Um, And it's one, do we have the, you know, does the art, like, what does that look like? It doesn't have to appeal to to get the consumer. And then um, the music. Uh, is the music good to, to, to lure the consumer in? Which has always been that. Um, but here we actually have to deal with that. Um, until, I'm not too sure, sure when visuals an issue, but until then, that is something um, that still has priority. And, and so when it comes to music too, I guess what I'm, I, I would want to say is, I don't know. And I don't know if this is a question or if this is just a statement in regards to like, in regards to like getting people to the music. Right? I think sometimes we, we fall into, okay, we have collectors. Um, that doesn't mean they actually like the music or, you know, are huge fans or supporters. And so I, I, I do wonder how um, us as musicians are able to weed that out. Like, you know, because, you know, the thing, of course, like being in the space is like, oh, we want, you know, we want to get those sales, right? But um, when you have a super supporter, right, that person is supporting you because they love not only the art, but also the music. And I think as musicians in this space, we, we it's, it's, a, it's a fine line between, you know, are people just buying this because they like us or, like, or do they really like the music as well? And, um, you know, it, it's a thing about, like, you know, it... It, it, it might it, to me. It, to me, it mirrors the same thing as a playlist, where you have just people listening to it because it's on the playlist. Versus, oh, are they actually like? Do they like this? Are they, you know, is this something that they want? And so, I do wonder, like, in this space, how are we able to figure out um, that kind of, you know, kind of barrier that's there? And that's that. I think this kind of ties to what I uh, was kind of saying. Is like, how do you? How do we maintain financialization while also allowing people to have authentic taste? That's the tug of war that I think creatives are facing in Web3 um, is if we want to do well here, we have to figure out how to make other people money. And in a, lo- in a lot of ways, that doesn't have anything to do with the thing that we made. Um where, where uh, funnily enough, having like a side conversation in the Black Dave Token chat around this idea that you you go to a meeting with a label and instead of talking about how good the song is, you talk about the strategy of releasing the song and marketing the song and how to make the most money from the song. Um, but that's the way that you make money. And so um, I think Mike's sitting on a lot of really interesting ideas um, about how we can think about making money while people give a shit about the music itself. Um, but it's definitely a, a, a tug of war against an unseen, very large enemy for us as creators um, using Web3 technology. 
I think that's a great spot to end. Definitely. Just, yeah, just want to thank everybody for being here. This has been an incredible conversation. And I mean, I, I for one, would love to do this you know, again and do it often. Um, really appreciate all of your thoughts um, and you know, all your energy and all the work that you know, you're doing toward thinking about building you know, music communities in healthier, in, in, you know, in healthier ways. So, um, yeah, you know, keep building. Appreciate you all. And you know, thanks for being here. Yes, thank you. Uh, we'll be posting this again uh, soon after a, uh, a couple of days. Uh, so please look up Central Media on social media, on the web, on, uh, on the internet. And uh, thank you very much for participating. This was fantastic. Really appreciate everything. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having us, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. And that's a wrap on this episode of Big Brother and the Hodling Company, which is produced by Matt Solon with music courtesy of Brian Dunking and Kareem Imes. Uh, thanks for being here and see you next time.